0: This is Our American Stories, and that's the soundtrack from Band of Brothers. And if you remember this series, and I'm sure most of you do, and if you haven't seen it, do see it, the HBO series, every week that music came up, it just set the mood. And then you'd see the original old soldiers talking to begin and end many of the hour-long Presentations in this very long and very brilliant series. The best on war ever made. And you won't hear my opinion much on this show, but that's one of them. And for the hour, we're going to talk about Major Dick Winters. Because on this day in history, he was born in 1918 in a small rural town in Pennsylvania. And he was a not very well-known retired soldier, until that HBO series came out. Ten million people watched the first episode. Tens of millions more have seen it since. In a longtime resident of Hershey, Pennsylvania, Winters died not far from where he was born in 2011, just shy of his 93rd birthday. But it's his life we're celebrating here today. Band of Brothers was based on a Stephen Ambrose book of the same name, chronicling the men of E-Company 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. The unit was known as Easy Company, but there was nothing easy about their mission. That brave band of warriors jumped out of planes and parachuted right into some of the fiercest combat of World War II. They started behind enemy lines near the beaches of France, fought their way through Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands, the Battle of the Bulge, and all the way to Eagle's Nest. Hitler's plush retreat tucked in the Alps above Berchtesgaden. The tour of duty was so tough that, as one easy company soldier would later write about his fellow soldiers in his unit, quote, The Purple Heart was not a decoration, but a badge of office. Born in Afreda, Pennsylvania, Winters moved to Lancaster when he was eight years old. And like so many small-town American boys, he was raised on small-town values, one of which was service to country. Indeed, his family connection to the military went all the way back to Timothy Winters, a British immigrant who served in the Revolutionary War and saw action at the Battle of Yorktown. Winters graduated from Lancaster Boys High in 1937 and attended nearby Franklin and Marshall, where he was a member of a fraternity and played football and basketball. But Winters had to give up one of his passions, wrestling, because he was too busy working at part-time jobs to help pay his tuition bill. He managed to graduate, though, with the highest academic standing in 1941. When the war broke out in Europe, Winters did what young men across this country did at the time. He enlisted in the Army. He was selected to attend officer candidate school, earned his commission in the summer of 1942, and then volunteered to join a newly formed paratrooper unit. Why such hazardous duty? Well, he was asked, and he told a reporter for American History Magazine, I applied for the Airborne because it was a new thing that looked like a challenge. I always enjoyed sports and physical activity, he said, and there was a certain appeal to being with the best. Nearly 500 officers volunteered to join that elite group of warriors. Only 148 made the cut. And for the hour, we're going to talk to two people who know a lot about Major Dick Winters, and one of them were pulling audio from the past. It's Major Dick Winters himself. And a little bit later, Colonel Cole Kingseed. And he was a former West Point military historian, and he just happened to co-author Dick Winters' memoir, Beyond the Band of Brothers. I wanted to start with a clip from some of the post-production that HBO did with both Dick Winters and some of his men. The first voice you're going to hear is Dick Winters. The other is some of his colleagues. And this cuts to what, in the end, we're going to be talking all about for the next hour. And it's the leadership characteristics, the character of Dick Winters, and why men followed him and why we loved him.
1: If you're a leader, you lead the way. Not just... Uh, on the easy ones, you take the tough ones too. A good leader has to understand
2: the people that are under him, understand their, their needs, their, their desires, or how they think a little bit. It seemed like he always made the right decisions along the way. He was a real soldier. Like some of, some of the officers, uh, I don't think I would follow them in the water. But uh, he, was, he was one of the best. He went right in there and he didn't, uh,
1: he never thought of not being first or sending somebody in his place. I don't know how he survived,
0: but he did. But he did. And by the way, Winter said, you got to take the tough ones. And boy, did he take the tough ones. None tougher than his first assignment on D-Day according to Cole Kingseed. When he landed, Winters assembled his command, and it was a widespread drop. But Winters was able by D-Day morning to gather 12 men, and he was ordered to destroy a German artillery battery that was firing on Utah Beach, one of the two American beaches, Kingseed told the BBC days after Winters' death. It was a 50-man German battery, he said, and Winters had 12 men, and by fire and maneuver, by leading his men from the front, he was able to knock out each of those guns on Utah Beach. And what a difference that made, King Seed explained. By silencing those guns, the American army suffered 192 dead on Utah Beach, in sharp contrast to Omaha Beach, where Americans suffered over 2,500 casualties. In their assault on that position, Major Winters noticed a wounded German soldier crawling toward a machine gun I drilled him clear through the head Winters told Stephen Ambrose when we come back we're going to hear from Major Dick Winters himself some old interviews and clips we pulled together and after that Colonel Cole Kingseed former West Point historian who wrote along with Major Dick Winters Beyond Band of Brothers the memoir of Dick Winters and a book every family should own more after these messages This is Our American Stories. We continue with our This Day in History segment for the hour, honoring and celebrating the life of Major Dick Winters. And now it's time for you to hear from him. And here is Dick Winters talking about getting mentally prepared for war.
1: You have to... Make up your mind that you're gonna be adjusted here uh, once the war's, Pearl Harbor. You make up your mind you're in now for the duration, baby. You're not just in for a year, for an obligation. So uh, you're here to get a job done. And you have to adjust yourself mentally. And I like to stress that point. whether you're a paratrooper or or what job you are, if you join the paratroopers, you have to adjust mentally to the fact that you're going to jump out of an airplane behind the enemy lines. And uh, to do that, you must be in shape physically.
0: And here is Winters on why being in good physical shape is a necessity for a leader.
1: Unless... You're in good physical shape. Forget being a leader. It's not gonna work out. You have to be in good physical shape to be a leader. And uh it's so true. And that opinion was only after he had interviewed, I guess you could say, thousands of uh servicemen because he had a he had dedicated his life to interviewing and getting the memories of all the veterans. Nearly
0: 500 officers, as we had told you before, tried to join that unit. And again, only 148 made the cut, that paratrooper unit he was a part of. Winters recalled the stark condition at Camp Tombs, Georgia, where he did some of his training. Quote, There were no windows in any of the buildings, and the only place with electricity was a latrine he recalled. It was rough, but you were expecting it to be rough if you were going to be in the parachute troops. And what were they looking for at Camp Tombs? he was asked. We looked for the ones who looked like they could take it, Winters explained. Quote, When the going got tough, could they stick with it? We also looked for the men who accepted discipline. But they were also looking for something else, explained Winters. Another thing we looked for, Winters said, is if the individual was accepted by the other men. The men did a lot of work for the officers by simply sizing one another up. If someone couldn't be accepted by his fellow soldiers, he was gone right away. The men who were told to leave didn't get to vote or make an appeal on this matter. This was not a popularity contest. Here's Winters on the bond of fellow soldiers in war.
1: You're working these men in this unit. And uh, you're sharing, you're sharing the hardships, and you're sharing the fact that of a job that you have to do. Uh, the this bond that you uh, that grows with the people that you're working with is uh, a closeness that uh, somebody that isn't a part of it can and that would be the folks back home cannot understand or appreciate to sort of share that with the folks back home. uh, They don't understand it because they haven't been through it. To illustrate that point, uh, I can pass along this thought. Uh, It was obvious as the war was over and we had a lot of uh, men marrying English girls, French girls and so forth and I can understand what what was happening. The soldiers realized that when they came back home, that if uh, the girls that they would meet back home would not appreciate, would not understand what he had been through. And there was a bond, just the fact that the the girls were uh, from England and through the bombings and the uh, and the hardships of uh, rationing and so forth, uh, the folks by home had, not underst- had never, never been subjected to rationing and the hardships. And that's why many married uh, girls from countries that we had conquered.
0: And that's what Band of Brothers was really all about in the end, getting us to understand what that conflict was like, because it didn't touch us here at home. And it was all about the camaraderie these men had. I don't think any movie ever got at it like Band of Brothers did. They had the time to do it. By the way, the movie and his life in Europe had great ups and great downs. Here's Winters talking about one of the great high moments. And it was as they walked through the towns of Europe, experiencing liberation from German occupation.
1: That's a party like you've never seen before in your life. You'd never seen people more happy in your life to have the feeling that they again had freedom. Which illustrates, and I hope I can never forget it, I don't think we can appreciate it. In this country, we take great pride in the fact we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear and freedom from want, The four freedoms. And these people had that denied to them. And they had lived under occupation of Germany and not knowing they would ever be free again. Freedom is so important that we take it for granted. And it shouldn't be taken for granted.
0: And Winters had his hand on his heart, and you could tell with this he took the greatest pride. He and his men, free to people. And now to some of the low points. And the lowest of the low was when Winters and his men were trapped in those trenches in the dead of winter, surrounded by German troops. They couldn't raise their heads up out of those trenches because they would have been in the sight lines of German guns. So many of them froze to death. But never was the thought of surrendering an option to these men.
1: That's a subject that never came up we never talked about it we never thought about it how can you if you're going to be sit around pitying yourself and talking about it and thinking about it the first thing you're going to do is you're going to convince yourself that you should surrender that never happened we never talked about it never thought about it
0: interestingly enough Banda Brothers chronicled the horrors of war and the camaraderie among men that war engenders, but the worst of Winter's War experiences did not involve combat. While on patrol, his men discovered a slave labor camp that was a part of Dachau in April of 1945. It was a ghastly scene, one he'd never forget.
1: Your first thought, when you see it, it just stops you. You've never seen anything like this, it's a complete shock. It just stops every feeling of uh, emotion that you have. Uh, The horror of it is you could never imagine anything like this before. Uh, Sure, you've been through the war and you've seen men killed and you've seen people, how they suffered in uh, France and Holland and Belgium and so forth, occupied countries. You see now, they've suffered with uh, uh, short rushings, and, uh, but you've never imagined anything like this.
0: He said this to a reporter, the memory of starved, dazed men who dropped their eyes and heads when we looked at them through the chain fence in the same manner that a beaten, mistreated dog would cringe leaves feelings that cannot be described and will not ever be forgotten. The impact of seeing those people behind that fence left me saying only to myself, now I know why I'm here. And the other tough part of this gig, of this service, was Major Dick Winters watching the casualties pout. Watching the the casualties mount. The
1: feeling that leaves you how long will this go on and uh, well this go on forever and you reach the point when you see people around you dropping basically every day. Uh, I hope when it's my turn that it isn't too bad. It's not a matter of if you know it's going to be your turn sooner or later. If you stick around long enough, you just hope it won't be too bad. Hope to live through it.
0: This is Our American Stories, the life of Major Dick Winters, born on this day in history in 1918. This is our American stories. We continue with our This Day in History segment, an hour on Major Dick Winters, and he was the leader in Band of Brothers, the men the men fell in love with and followed, and the man we all fell in love with and wanted to be like. And by the way, our This Days in Histories are always brought to us by Hillsdale College, where they teach you all the good things in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you, go to hillsdale.edu and listen to so many of their great, great courses. And now we want to turn to Colonel Cole Kingseed, who served in the U.S. Army for 30 years and was Chief of Military History at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Colonel Kingseed is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Beyond the Band of Brothers, The War Memoirs of Major Dick Winters, And we spoke to him just the other day in preparation for this hour-long celebration. And to start things off, talking about Winters, you had to ask, what was D-Day like?
3: It was a remarkable day, -Day. D-Day. Sometimes I would say, Lee, a single day's combat reveals more about the character of a nation than a generation of peace. Dick, Winters' mission... Uh, He was second in command of Easy Company, was to destroy that four-gun German artillery battery that was firing on Utah Beach, and that was probably the most successful amphibious landing on D-Day. Dick Winters, a member of Easy Company, had only 12 members of Easy Company when he was given that mission. Normally, that would be a company-sized mission for about 150 paratroopers. So Dick had to scrape about um, an ad hoc force to knock that German artillery battery out of action.
0: And by the way, again, that, that battery had around 50 men, according to Dick Winter's memory, and some of the other men that survived. You know, we talked a lot about many of the aspects of leadership with Colonel Cole Kingseed. And one of the dimensions was the idea of loneliness. Because when you watch Band of Brothers, Winters was always off by himself. He was close to the men, but he couldn't get too close. And before we throw to that call Kingseed clip, here's what Winters himself had to say to American history. He said, quote, You maintain close relationships with your men, but not friendship. You have mutual respect for one another, yet you have to hold yourself aloof to a degree. Because if you are too friendly, it can work in a negative way when you need to discipline your men. In leading groups effectively, you have to rise above camaraderie. So let's talk to King Seed about that question. Was he a lonely man?
3: Dick Orson would say, I count my close friends on one hand. I don't want anyone to know me. And he talked about the command in war. He said it is a very lonely job. Um, And and it's really because of that, because the the leader has to make the very difficult decisions on which uh, soldiers' lives depend. And it's hard to make those decisions if you get too close to the soldiers themselves.
0: And by the way, actor Damian Lewis did such a beautiful job capturing that loneliness. He didn't wear it on his sleeve. He never whimpered or whined about it. It's just there he was. You knew it. You could feel it. And it hurt him. We asked Colonel Kingseed, what made Winters a success?
3: I asked him once, I said, Why do you, to what do you attribute your success? He goes, well, I don't like to talk about myself, but I think that probably the reason that I was so successful was that I never forgot the place I came from. And Dick Winters was not always an officer. He enlisted in the Army. And so in one of his letters home to a platonic friend, he said, you know, I'm, uh, he called himself a half-breed. An officer, yes, but an enlisted soldier at heart. That was the essence of Dick Winters as a leader.
0: Indeed, he started as a private. How did Winters balance being a leader and being one of the guys?
3: I always call it be enable the ability to fly at different altitudes. You can be at the very tactical level with the soldiers at one time. But then you have to be more at a strategic level. You have to be able and the willingness to make the hard decisions on which the organization depends. And that's what, uh, that's what you end up seeing with Dick. So you could kind of let the soldiers uh, steam, uh, let off steam but he always had to make the quick decisions to ensure that they survived.
0: What was Winter's style of leadership?
3: His style of leadership was leadership by example. I, I often ask Dick about um, you know, leadership because he has obviously was, and acknowledged uh, that from the Soldiers of Easy Company, it was Dick Winter's company. This is what Dick said. He said, leadership is very difficult to define. Uh, he always went, he echoed uh, Dwight David Eisenhower when he said, The one quality that can be developed by studious reflection and practice is the leadership of men. And that's really the essence of what, uh, Dick Winters. Um, it's, it's a lonely job, as we uh, talked about in the uh, earlier uh, uh, segment, but, uh, you know, how do you know if you survive? Or how do you uh, how are you um, know if you've been a successful leader? And Dick would always say, all you have to do is to take a look at the eyes of the soldiers. Then that well that's your satisfaction. It has nothing to do with the medals in the chest or anything else. To make sure that uh, that you have done your job and you were able to get your soldiers back home the most soldiers possible.
0: And again, we're talking to Colonel Kingseed, who is the military historian at West Point and co-author of Beyond the Band of Brothers, the memoir he co-wrote with Major Dick Winters. And we asked him why Winters was so willing to fight down in the trenches with his men.
3: That was at the level that he uh, operated and kind of the tactical level. Here's the thing about Dick. He was able to associate himself with In this case, Easy Company. Dick always said this, Easy Company made me. It brought out the very best of me. As I reflect upon my life after the war, I can honestly say that it has been a lifetime search for the men like those I knew in Easy Company in World War II.
0: And then we asked him about mistakes and how you lead without being willing to admit them.
3: I asked Dick Winters about it. I said, listen, every time with, Am- with Stephen Ambrose, who wrote Band of Brothers, and Tom Hanks and Spielberg with the, uh, with the miniseries, I said, you certainly made a, a number of mistakes. He said, yes, I did. And, uh, he, and I said, give me, give me an example. He said, normally when, we, when you attack, you have like two platoons. A platoon would be roughly about 30 soldiers. Two platoons forward, in one fact and I fell into a habit he said that I always kept first platoon on the left and the second platoon on the right and the third platoon was always in the rear as a result of that by 50 years after the war there were far more survivors of platoon uh, the third platoon than there were on those who were forward said I should have rotated uh, those platoons. It wasn't a conscious thought, but I, I failed to rotate the units as a result of that. He was very willing to admit that. That has a lot to do about humility.
0: You bet him. Humility was the watchword, the key word to understanding the character of Richard Winters. And when we come back, more from Colonel Kingseed and from Major Dick Winters himself. This is Our American Stories... Are this day in history? The story of Major Dick Winters. This is our American Stories. This is our final segment in an hour-long celebration of Major Dick Winters, born on this day in history in 1918. And we share the same birthday, me and Major Dick Winters. And we were talking with Colonel Cole Kingseed, and we then asked him, how did the movie and the book Band of Brothers affect him?
3: It did not affect Dick Winters at all. Again, uh, the fame meant nothing to Dick. What he took great pride in, that in the Band of Brothers segment, as well as the movie, that they often highlighted an individual soldier from Easy Company. And that's where he took great pride in, that I gave the, a lot of these other uh, soldiers who... Uh, Became famous as a result of that. Dick uh, Dick left the war with uh, you know more medals, more fame than uh, than anybody probably uh, should have achieved. But the essence of Dick Winters was humility. Humility uh, really has got to be the me- the true measure of a man or a woman who has achieved fame based on the sacrifice of their fellow men and women.
0: In one of Winter's very last interviews, public interviews, and you can find it up on YouTube, he was asked about what it was like adjusting to civilian life, and well, this holds true to soldiers today just as it did back then.
1: They looked you straight in the eye. Do you think this guy you're looking at today has adjusted to this day? It's a slow process. And as we shared earlier here, you relive this with flashbacks. So this is part of the adjustment you're still making today. Uh, Initially, they're very tough. Uh, I can recall a time coming home and I just wanted to go take walks by myself uh, to get away from the family to get away by yourself, basically. And I'm walking down this street in Lancaster, and I'm going by a, a home that had a a fence, pale fence there, and there was a kid coming the other way. And this kid had a stick with him, and he just took the stick and went down along the fence. I picked myself up out of the gutter to a thought, it's just a natural reaction from what you've been going through all these years when you have a machine gun fire, you hit the ditch, you don't care who you are, you don't think, you're reacting. Uh, But you recover from that slowly. And it's up to you mentally to, again, Not only get ready to go in combat, now you have to adjust yourself mentally to get back into civilian life and be able to adjust to civilian life. It's not easy.
0: No, and that was chronicled in American Sniper. And so that never changes, coming back from seeing the things men in battle see and then having to deal with civilian life. Here, Winters describes the difficulty in talking to civilians about what goes on in war.
1: To talk to a civilian or somebody who's never been overseas, again, you have to withdraw yourself because he won't know what you're talking about. And uh, you do not want to come across the, uh, or leave the impression that you were bragging. No, you're not bragging, you're just sharing a memory. And that's hard to do. So, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And as you can see, it's even difficult right here today.
0: Yeah, and this is Major Dick Winters in his early 90s. And still you can hear him almost tearing up. Winters then gave this advice for young people.
1: The important thing to keep in mind for any young student and I enjoy talking to high school group children. And we get a lot of letters, as I've shared with you, from students all ages, basically. And basically, I have one message to all. They're all the same. Hang tough. And I mean by saying hanging tough, do your best every day whether it's in school, or at your job, or wherever you are. Do your best every day. And you can't ask for it. You don't have to know all the answers. No way. Don't expect that of yourself. Just do your best. Satisfy yourself. So that at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror after you brush your teeth and say honestly to yourself, Today, I did my best. And if you do that, you're being honest, and everything is going to be okay.
0: Winters wasn't always sure he'd live through the war. He told writer Stephen Ambrose that he knelt down and prayed after D-Day. Quote, If somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace, Winters were cold. After the war, he found that quiet piece of land. He bought a farm outside Hershey, Pennsylvania, where he spent the rest of his life with his bride, Ethel. But peace, that eluded him. And then he decided, late in his life, to tell his own story. And when he submitted the final revisions of his memoir to his co-author, Cole Kingseed, He had good news to report, and we talked to Cole Kingseed about that.
3: He finally did, Uh, and and you're absolutely right about the peace and quiet. Uh, It's very easy to uh, uh, achieve quiet, but peace has to come from within. Dick Winter's last 60 years of his life was a search for that inner peace, and he finally found it finally found it in 2005 when we submitted the manuscript of his war memoirs to the publisher. We had to uh, submit it on April 1st, uh, 2005. I, I drove back to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I said, Dick, the manuscript has uh, sent to the publication. He says, do you need anything else from me? I said, absolutely not. Lee, what he ended up doing, he was sitting in a chair, he took his glasses off, he put his uh, back to in the chair, closed his eyes, and he said, it's over. It's over. And that's the last time he ever spoke about World War II. He wanted that story out so he could end that chapter of his life that began on D-Day.
0: Winters is buried next to his parents in the family plot in the town where he was born. His grave is marked only Richard D. Winters, WW2, 101st Airborne. That's it. He did not include the many awards he won during World War II, among them the nation's second highest decoration for valor, the Distinguished Service Cross for Heroism on D-Day. But that was just like Dick Winters. Humble in birth, humble in death. In the final scene of Band of Brothers, and I defy anyone to not cry through it, the real life Dick Winters recalls a story that a friend of his told him about a conversation he had had with his grandson. And we're going to play that clip from Band of Brothers right now. Here's Dick Winters.
1: Do you remember the letter that Mike granny wrote me? You do. Do you remember how I ended it? I cherish the memories of a question my grandson asked me the other day when he said, Grandpa, were you a hero in the war? Grandpa said no. But I served in a company of girls.
0: And that's how Band of Brothers ended. And if you don't have Band of Brothers, get it, order it, and keep it at home. Watch it once a year with the family. In a BBC interview back in 2001, Stephen Ambrose said that he hoped after reading his book, young people would say to themselves, quote, I want to be like Dick Winters. Anyone who saw that series wanted to be like Dick Winters. And the company of heroes he had the privilege to lead One of the truths about history that needs to be portrayed, said David McCullough in a lecture at Hillsdale College some years ago, is that nothing had to happen the way it happened. Well, the Allied victory in World War II did not have to happen. Men like Dick Winters and the men he led, they made it happen. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories Born on this day in history, in 1918, in a small town in rural Pennsylvania, Major Dick Winters, this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when you hear that music, it's time for our weekly Final Thoughts series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying, and also tributes to loved ones who have passed, a eulogy, a poem, anything and everything that stirs the soul. This week's Final Thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dana Mish, a University of Virginia graduate who still lives in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, which makes Alex and me, fellow UVA grads, very jealous. Tragically, Dana's father committed suicide, and Dana wrote about the experience and what she's taken away from it for her own life and perhaps for what we all could learn from it, and she did so in a Washington Post column. She wrote it for National Suicide Prevention Month, and Dana graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen.
4: Nine months ago, I stood at my father's burial trying to gather my thoughts before speaking about his life to family and friends. It was particularly difficult because I had arrived at a day I'd been trying to prevent and had feared for a very long time. My dad had just ended his life. But then, as I was standing there searching for the words, I remembered an article I had read only seven days prior. It was about ways to help yourself feel safe in an insane world. And so I began by sharing what I had learned, that anxiety needs the future and depression needs the past. My dad had suffered deeply from both of these things, his fear and lack of control over all that lay ahead, and his regret over the things he couldn't go back and change. He suffered from an unhealthy relationship with time. He lost his footing in the here and now. And it made him struggle, as all too many of us do, with the age-old Shakespearean dilemma, to be or not to be. Though it's still difficult for me to admit it, this very question had begun to plague my mind just six months before my father died, during my own first battle with anxiety. And so as I stood there with my father about to be lowered into the ground with many knowing eyes upon me, I shared an answer that the article had given— To be present. It was an answer that spoke to my heart, and I told them that in that moment, and as hard a moment as it was, I was grateful to be with them. Ever since that day, I've been thinking a lot about being present. I've been thinking about being centered, being grounded. In short, I've been thinking about being and I began wondering why it was so difficult to come up with a concrete meaning for what was perhaps the most basic verb in the English language without consulting the online search engine gods. And I worried, had I forgotten what it was to just be? Eventually, I turned to Google, and this is what it had to say. Be. One, exist. Two, occupy a position in space. And three, stay in the same condition. Sounds easy enough, right? Well, I'm not so sure, to be honest. After all, the word be is actually most commonly used in its fourth meaning, possess the state, quality, or nature specified. This is when be is followed by other words rather than a period. Other, sometimes aspirational words used by and for us humans like smart, healthy, hard-working, good-looking, athletic, etc. The list goes on and on. After some thinking on the subject, I began to wonder if the pressure of focusing on the many things we know we are supposed to be, but sometimes fall short of or believe we fall short of, diminishes our ability to more simply be. To be in the traditional, unembellished sense. To be comfortable in our own skin. To be one with ourselves and our surroundings. To be at peace. In essence, definitions one through three described earlier. So I guess my question really is, have we as a society forgotten how to just be? Ironically, I think it's when we constantly try to be too many things at once, or perhaps one astronomical thing, that we entirely forget how to exist with any amount of calmness and composure in the present moment. When stressed beyond our normal capacity, our minds scatter, and it can feel like we aren't even inhabiting our own body. We can end up spiraling out of control and losing our sense of place and time and self, We land somewhere dark and frightening and terrible, and it's then, when we get to the very bottom of that downward spiral, that we think it might be better simply not to be, because at that point, the thought of being anything at all has become unbearable. I know it all too well. I've been there once for a horrific, acute six-week stint, and I hope never to be brought back again. So in the spirit of National Suicide Prevention Month, I thought I'd share how I go about keeping anxiety and depression at bay. Yes, I've been doing a lot of thinking about just being, but more than that, I've been putting it into practice. I've learned how to quiet my mind and focus on the present moment. I meditate, breathe, and practice yoga. And building from that, I write, read, run, and do all the things I've always enjoyed. But here's what's different. I'm newly practicing mindfulness and gratitude all the while. I'm ensuring that my brain is present where my body is. I'm making the constant effort to focus and mentally expand upon all the simple things that keep me going. It's through this present tense state of mind that I find my rhythm, my sense of calm, and my appreciation for all that is. Now, to be honest, it doesn't always come easy, even for a mentally healthy, happy, neurotransmitter-balanced brain. In fact, it truly takes constant effort. But if, God forbid, there is to be a future struggle in store for me, I also know better how to take it back to the basics. I know how to close my eyes, to find myself, and to be. To truly just be. Perhaps that is our answer.
0: Beautiful, Dana. And that's Dana Mish a writer, speaker, and advocate on the topics of suicide prevention and Holocaust remembrance. And you can learn more about her and read her writing on her blog, www.movingforward.com. And your final thoughts, give us a call at 1-844-627-8255. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and it's our American Stories. And it's time now for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and the liberal arts, all the things that matter in life. And in this feature, you're about to meet someone you've definitely heard of, but likely don't know much about. Some people call me the space cowboy. Call me the Gangster of Love Some people call me Maurice Cause I speak of the pompous of Love
2: Fighter pilot, war hero, son, MIT rocket scientist, father He has been all these things and a lot more things but he's mostly remembered for one thing something he's a little tired of being asked about after 60 years of it you might have been too he's also tired of it because it's not enough to him it's something we did he says now we should do something else his name is buzz aldrin And that something he did, that one thing, was being the second man to ever walk on the moon, answering his president's call of duty.
5: But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon! We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: You'd think his vanity license plate would be Moon Guy. Yet it's Mars Guy. It's that something else he thinks we should do. Mars. Born in Montclair, New Jersey, Buzz Aldrin's mother had the maiden name Moon. Coincidence, you ask? I don't think so. His real name is Edwin, but his sister couldn't say brother. The name Buzzer just kept coming out of her mouth, and the nickname Buzz sticked. If you believe they
3: put a man on the moon. On the moon.
2: His country is glad it did. And Edwin walking on the moon is not nearly as profound as a Buzz doing so. Buzz was a Boy Scout as so many great men are. He was also shaped by his family, in good ways and in bad.
6: Check ignition and may God's love be with you.
2: His grandfather put a bullet through his brain. His mom swallowed pills to her death. His father was almost too alive in his life. A career military man, his father knew Amelia Earhart, one of the Wright brothers, and took a transatlantic flight on the Hindenburg before it blew up. He wanted his only boy Buzz to be just like him, brave and brilliant. But Buzz was shy and sensitive, and he drove himself to his father's dreams for him. When he flew combat missions in the Korean War, and was decorated with the distinguished flying cross. His father said, And? And so, he went to MIT and earned a doctorate of science in astronautics. These elite experiences led him to NASA, and when he walked on the moon, his dad said, And? The second man to walk on the moon? Number two? His father was so affected by it that he waged a one-man campaign to get the Postal Service to change its Neil Armstrong First Man on the Moon commemorative stamp to one that said First Men on the Moon so it could include Buzz. He would lose and Buzz would lose something much greater when he returned home. As GQ magazine put it, he discovered the melancholy of all things done. He was a conqueror with nothing left to conquer but his own demons. NASA had no more use for Buzz. They sent him around the world like a PR flack. Even though he was a scientist, his mind was left idle. Buzz resigned and returned to the Air Force. But they didn't exactly know what to do with an academic who had just been to the moon. And so Buzz picked up the bottle. He put down his marriage to the mother of his three children. He retired and went into rehab, tried out marriage again for a year, and drank some more. A Cadillac dealership sounded like a good place to go, but he didn't sell very many of them. As if it could get any worse, he created this song with Snoop Dogg.
5: Are you ready to put on your spacesuit? suit?
1: Strap in for the G-Force lift off. Countdown is getting very close
6: now to the adventure of a lifetime.
2: If his life tells us anything, it's that we are complex human beings. All with our own crosses. All capable of our own triumphs. All with a need for love in our lives. Especially the love of a father and a mother. To close our tribute to Buzz Aldrin, an American great, born on this day in history in 1930, we take you to his telling of his time on the moon, first with seeing his friend Neil Armstrong becoming the first man to ever set foot on the moon. It was
1: absolutely correct that the captain, the commander, make the first descent and walk on the moon. Dear men from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, 50 We came in peace for all mankind. Uh, that, that statement really, to me, was a very symbolic one of not just our mission, but all of the Apollo effort. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes from The flag up now, you can
0: see the stars and stripes from Beautiful, just beautiful
1: if you look real close, you can see that I'm uh, saluting the flag. And for a military person, that was indeed a very, very proud moment to be on the moon saluting uh, the flag.
2: And then Buzz did something a little more reflective. He radioed over to NASA. Ending his radio communication, he then read from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, which says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Buzz said of this verse, I read the words which I had chosen to indicate our trust that as man probes into space, We are, in fact, acting in Christ. I sensed especially strongly my unity with our church back home and with the church everywhere, and then took communion. Later recounting in Guidepost magazine, I ate the tiny host and swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. It was interesting for me to think, The very first liquid ever poured on the moon, and the very first food eaten there, were the communion elements. Buzz Aldrin marked his territory in his own special way, and marked what he saw as God's territory in his special way. Although NASA wouldn't let him share with the world what he had done. But in the end, who's going to stop Buzz Aldrin? At least for as long as he continues to wear Jockey underwear Jockey Supporting greatness since
5: 1876
0: That's just a fantastic piece of work, Greg Great job And my goodness I wasn't prepared for that
2: That's great.
0: What a life And we don't do simple things here. Complex human beings, complex lives. Affirmative anytime we can get a chance. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can catch all of this on ouramericannetwork.org. And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to U2's The Refugee and those great lyrics. She's the refugee. Her mama says one day she's going to live in America. And we're playing this song because I bumped across a fascinating immigration story a while back in the Wall Street Journal. It was by Eric Liu, an American citizen, the son of Chinese immigrants. He was a speechwriter and policy advisor for former President Bill Clinton. And in his column, Eric wondered out loud, could he ever become a Chinese citizen? Seems like a strange question. Many folks become American citizens. You've got to think that at least some folks around this globe might want to become Chinese citizens from other countries. Well, Eric explored this question and graciously recorded his column for us. Let's take a listen.
6: It started as a thought experiment. I wondered what it would take for me, the son of Chinese immigrants, to become a citizen of China. So I called the nearest Chinese consulate, and got lost in a voicemail maze with nobody at the end. The consulate's website explained the process for getting visas, but not for naturalization. Then I realized why it was so difficult to get an answer. Beijing doesn't ever expect to hear from foreigners who want to become Chinese citizens. As it turns out, a naturalization procedure is found under China's nationality law, but precious few people pursue it. The 2000 Chinese census counted just 941 naturalized citizens.
0: 941 naturalized citizens in a country of over 1.3 billion people. Let's continue with Eric Liu's column.
6: But let's say that I decided to become fluent in Mandarin, brush up my knowledge of Chinese history and culture, move to China and live the rest of my life there. Even then... Even with thousands of generations of Chinese genes behind me, I would still not be accepted as truly Chinese. All this crystallized for me why, in this supposed age of a rising China and a declining U.S., we Americans should worry a bit less. No matter how huge China's GDP gets, the U.S. retains a deep, enduring competitive advantage. America makes Chinese Americans. China doesn't make American Chinese. China also isn't particularly interested in making American Chinese. It isn't in China's operating system to welcome, integrate, and empower immigrants to redefine the very meaning of Chineseness. That means that China lags behind the U.S. in a crucial 21st century way, embracing diversity and making something great from many multicultural parts.
0: This is a great point. And by the way, I think one of the great lines I've heard in a long time, America makes Chinese Americans... China doesn't make American Chinese. And this is our cultural advantage. This is our nation's advantage in the end. Eric Liu continued.
6: Consider, for instance, the way that a Chinese state media organ mocked the departing U.S. ambassador, Gary Locke, as a, quote, banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. What did Mr. Locke, the first Chinese-American ambassador to Beijing, Eagle Scout, former governor and cabinet secretary, due to earn such an epithet, merely his job, representing U.S. interests and values even when they conflicted with China's. The episode suggested that some ruling elites in China were unwilling or unable to distinguish between someone Chinese and someone Chinese-American. The premise of the banana diatribe was that an ethnic Chinese, even one born and raised in the U.S., must be essentially loyal to the Chinese motherland, That assumption could be called romantic or racial. It can't be called modern. And let's return to Eric. Meanwhile, just a few weeks after Mr. Locke returned home, ABC greenlit a new sitcom called Fresh Off the Boat, based on the memoir of iconoclastic restaurateur Eddie Huang. Many Chinese-Americans beamed. It was the first time any major network had focused on a family of Chinese or Taiwanese ancestry, and the first time since Margaret Cho's 1994 sitcom All-American Girl that Asian Americans had anchored a primetime show. Even more satisfying is the three-dimensional life behind the sitcom. Growing up in an immigrant household, Mr. Huang was a rebel, a hip-hop aficionado, and an indifferent student who defied labels like banana, if only because he thought himself more black than white. He briefly succumbed to his parents' expectations and became a lawyer, then quit and opened a Lower East Side street food joint rooted in the Taiwanese home cooking of his childhood. The point of American life is to take Eddie wangs and let them fuse the styles of rappers and foodies and hipsters and more, and thereby redefine American. This is the great U.S. advantage. But there is nothing automatically self-renewing about our inclusive civic ecosystem. It must be cultivated continuously. People like me can offer what I call the Chinese-American way, Tempering raw individualism with a sense of community, adding a corrective dose of duty and propriety to a society rooted in rights and self-expression, paying heed to context and history, not just what's shiniest here and now. And here's how Eric Liu finished off
0: his column called Why I Just Can't Become Chinese and his vivid contrast of China's nativism and America's powerful fusion of ethnic cultures.
6: This fusion is perhaps best embodied by the second generation, children of Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants who grow up at the intersection of cultures. Consider Ai-jen Poo, the New York-based founder of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She advocates fearlessly for a workforce of poor women of color. How American. But she does so using the language of love, intergenerational care, and family responsibility. How Chinese. Or take Tony Shea, the founder and CEO of Zappos.com, who moved his company to dilapidated downtown Las Vegas and put $300 million of his own fortune into revitalizing it. His goal is to foster community in perhaps the country's most atomistic place, audaciously American, profoundly Chinese. Let China make it hard for outsiders to become Chinese. The great competition today isn't really between China and the U.S. It's between the static illusion of purity and the propulsive reality of hybridity. If we choose well, my country will still prevail.
0: And that is our great advantage. And as talent migrates and moves, well, we're going to pick it up and China's not. Stan, as you being our resident Chinese producer, and I'm the resident Lebanese producer, and we've got, you know, we we try to cover the rainbow here. Uh, Did that surprise you, the 941 number? The 941 naturalized citizens?
7: I'm I'm mildly surprised it's at 941. And why why is that? Why does that surprise you? Well, it's... Well, actually, let me phrase it a little bit differently. I'm not surprised there are 941 naturalized citizens because that's a legal process. Just you, you've lived here for X number of years, you have a work visa, et cetera. So that number wouldn't surprise me. What I'm, what I'm really driving at is I'd, I'd be very surprised if 941 non-ethnic Chinese integrated into the Chinese culture. Because like Eric was saying, I don't think it's built for that. Because, And in, 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 by the way, this isn't just about China. Even if you go to Europe, most almost... Essentially, every culture other than America is built on this idea of you are born here. So it's either tied to a piece of land or it's tied to your ethnicity in the sense that who are your parents, who are your grandparents. But we've never defined American identity that way. It's never been because – well, probably outside of Texas. That, that, that's the exception. Right, right. But, but generally speaking, we, we have an American creed. We have American beliefs. We, but we don't define our Americanness in terms of the spot in which we were born or by tracing our bloodline back. Right. So, so I think that, that's a great distinction. And it's
0: also a country built around ideas, ultimately. I mean, America is an idea, and everybody from everywhere is welcome. And if you want to become a French citizen, well, go ahead. But I don't think the French will ever see you as French if you're me, an Italian, yeah. and a Lebanese guy.
7: And, and I think it's also the character of immigrants is different And that I was uh, I was just talking to Alex over dinner the other night about one of the great American chefs today is a guy named Corey Lee, who was born in Korea, came to America, worked his way up through New York, trained under Thomas Keller, who's a French chef in California. And now he runs a whatever you want to call it, an Asian-American fusion three star Michelin restaurant in San Francisco. And the only reason why he could do all of that is we have the American cultural framework that says, yeah, you're born in Korea, but come on in, you can be American. But the, the flip side of that is Corey's parents also said to him, by the way, we're Koreans, we're proud of that, but don't come here and associate only with other Koreans. Go be an American. Right. Go play basketball with the Mexican kids. Go do X and y. you know. So we are built for the sort of assimilation that I think is unique.
0: Go be an American. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories, and we love telling immigrant stories. Because in the end, that is the ultimate American story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, President John F. Kennedy was sworn in as the 35th President of the United States. He was the youngest president ever to be elected, and also the first Roman Catholic to be elected. We'll be hearing from his famous inaugural address, which we can learn from today just as much as the people of America could then. Here, President Kennedy begins by describing what's at stake in the midst of the Cold War.
5: We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world.
0: Boy, could he, could he deliver a speech. JFK then laid out his vision for America's role in a changing world.
5: Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. To those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do. For we dare not meet a powerful challenge at odds and split asunder. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom. And to remember that in the past, those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger, ended up inside. (laughs) To those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich.
0: Great writing, too. But JFK was not just some starry-eyed idealist, no. Here's what he had to say about our would-be foes.
5: Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary, we offer not a pledge, but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Before the dark powers of destruction unleashed by science engulf all humanity, in planned or accidental self-destruction. We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they will never be employed. But neither can two great and powerful groups of nations take comfort from our present course, both sides overburdened, by the cost of modern weapons, both rightly alarmed by the steady spread of the deadly atom, yet both racing to alter that uncertain balance of terror that stays the hand of mankind's final war. So let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness, and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate.
0: Now JFK turned back to his audience, the American people, to remind us of what our blood, sweat, and tears can accomplish.
5: In your hands, my fellow citizens, more than mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answered the call to service surround the globe. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance, north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind? Will you join in that historic effort? In the long history of the world, Only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it.
0: You can see how JFK captured the spirit of that generation.
5: I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man.
0: JFK's inaugural speech, January 20th, 1961. This day in history is always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you through their great online courses. There are a dozen plus there now. Go to hillsdale.edu. Watch them with your family. This is Our American Stories.